This is Dave Smith, author of Disney Trivia from the Vault and Disney A to Z, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 54 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at storiesofthemagic.com slash audible. There's over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including my own book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. In this episode, we begin what I squeezed down into a three-part interview with author and Disney historian Jim Corcus. I knew we'd have a lot to talk about, and I was definitely not disappointed. I don't think you will be either. It honestly hurt to cut some of what I did cut to get it down as far as I have. But first, again, I want to tell you and remind you about that special gift I have for you as a listener to Stories of the Magic. Remember, in preparation for the release of the book, I created a one-hour walking tour of Disneyland that relates to the book. Now, originally this was only available to people who bought during the launch, but now I'm making it available to you as a free download just for the month of April. No strings, nothing to fill out or sign up for or anything like that. Just go to storiesofthemagic.com slash faithaudiotour. One word, Faith Audio Tour. That is a direct link to download the file. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com slash faithaudiotour. Now, in this episode, Jim talks about how he first got interested in and then interested in working for the Walt Disney Company. The dedicated and creative way he got interviews with some Disney animators at 12 years old. His very first interview and where he went from there why he realized how blessed he was to get to do these interviews, and why that was also a source of frustration for him. How he got started working for Disney, including why he had to move to Orlando, which was not part of his plan. A quick aside about being on The Gong Show, The Dating Game, and Family Feud. His first job working for Disney. It wasn't what he expected, for sure. Being a couple of characters, at least one of which you may not remember. Teaching as part of Disney University, then tours and teaching with Disney Adult Discoveries, and more. Being let go from Disney, and how he used that to more formally launch his writing career. Why he'd been writing under the name Wade Sampson until this time, and the origin of that name. What he still does for Disney. Two articles he wrote recently for Disney-approved publications that got rejected. You'll be surprised at why. A couple of ways Walt Disney was always keeping the guests in mind and planning ahead. The time he first remembers realizing he was a part of the magic he'd spent so much time learning and interviewing people about. The responsibility he feels to people who shared stories with him over the years. A world where many people don't know Walt was a real person and what that's doing to his legacy, and what Jim loved most about what he did. 
As I said, I squeezed this down into just the first third of the interview. As you can tell, there's a lot packed in there. So now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat.com And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. In the early years of reading Disney-related stuff online, one of the first sites I became a regular reader of was MousePlanet.com, and the articles that I looked forward to the most were Wednesdays with Wade Sampson. So it was with shock and sadness that I saw the headline in September of 2010, Wade Sampson's last column. Fortunately, my dismay turned to joy when I read its opening words. This may be one of the worst-kept secrets in the Disney historical community, but now is the time for all Mouse Planet readers to know the truth. Mouse Planet columnist Wade Sampson is actually Disney historian Jim Corcus. Since that time, I've read Jim's column regularly and have been equally pleased when I've been able to hear him on WDW Radio talking to Lou Mangiello about Disney history, especially that of Walt Disney World. As an avid fan of Disney history myself, I love hearing him share his knowledge. In fact, in the interest of full disclosure, if you've ever been to a Disney park with me and heard me share an interesting story, there's a better than average chance I first heard it from Jim Corcus. Jim is also the author of at least four Disney-related books, The Vault of Walt, now the revised Vault of Walt, Who's Afraid of Song of the South, Vault of Walt, Volume 2, and his most recent, Book of Mouse. Besides these, he's written hundreds of articles and given hundreds of presentations about all things Disney for over three decades. The Disney Company makes frequent use of his extensive expertise and knowledge for special projects, and he was awarded the prestigious Partners in Excellence Award by Disney in 2004. Jim, welcome to Stories of the Magic. Well, well thank you, Randy, and, and I guess we should just stop the podcast right now because it's never going to get any better than that introduction that you just gave me. Thank you so much for those very kind and uh, uh, generous uh, words. I, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed just uh, sharing the information that uh, 
uh, I have about Disney with so many people, uh, specifically for one of the reasons that that you mentioned that uh, you can share those stories with uh, with others because we're really at that point now in Disney history where a lot of these stories are being lost forever. A lot of the people who knew them are are no longer around, and and I feel a great responsibility that since I had a, a, a wonderful opportunity to meet and listen to some of these people, is to continue on uh, that information, that legacy, that Disney magic for those people who really knew and worked with Walt uh, uh, out there. So, so that's uh, terrific. You know how I got, uh, got started and interested in Disney, right, Randy? I think I've heard the story, but for the sake of listeners, please go ahead and share it. Oh gosh, yeah, it, it it it's it's a wonderful story about uh, uh, opportunity. You know, I w- I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so I I, c- I could have grown up, you know, uh, just working on a cattle ranch and driving a pickup truck and all that. But uh, but fortunately, God blessed me and uh, moved me out to uh, Glendale, California, when I was just five years old. And Glendale, California is is adjacent to. Um, Burbank, uh, which is where the Disney Studios are. And uh, when I was uh, 12 years old, I was absolutely just fascinated with with animation. And uh, every uh, week I would watch the uh, uh, Disney uh, television show. And uh, at the end, they would have the uh, uh, credits come up. And I would desperately scribble down those names in my school notebook and then I would go to the Glendale Burbank uh, phone book. There was a Glendale Burbank phone book because Glendale and Burbank were both pretty small towns in those days. And uh, so I, I would look up the names. And interestingly enough, many of these people lived in the Glendale and Burbank uh, area. And so at 12 years old, I, I phoned them up and uh, just a cold call. And I said, you know, I saw your name on on, on television and I'm interested in animation and how did you do this and uh, all of that? And and eighty percent of them were just tremendously, you know, uh, gracious and 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 supportive and and all of that. About fifteen percent thought that it was a, a gag that uh, you know their friends had uh, put them up. You know, here's this twelve year old kid just calling me out of the blue and saying, "Yeah, I like what you do. Uh, can you tell me?" You know, and then five percent were uh, like just wrong numbers, names that were similar, but not not there. And uh, uh, some of these folks, uh, the very first one, Jack Hanna, who was uh, at that time teaching um, at uh, California Institute of the Arts, he had been uh, a, a director of most of the uh, award-winning Donald Duck uh, shorts. He invited me over uh, to uh, uh, his house so that I, I, I could talk and Oh my gosh! I, I I remember having my mom drop me off, and I was there uh, uh, a half hour early, and uh, so I didn't want to intrude because you know we had specifically set two o'clock, so I didn't want to seem rude to get there early. And I'm in my uh, suit. I'm in my Sunday suit. I'm in the suit that I wore to go to Sunday school, and I had the little thin black tie and the whole bit, and I had a, a tape recorder and and my notebook and all that and so what I did is I just walked around the block to kill time 
and that didn't kill enough time. So <laughs> I walked around the block the other way. And there still was, so I walked around again. And eventually it got close enough to 2 o'clock that uh, I, I remember. I remember uh, going up, uh, he had uh, uh, steps outside the house. So it was on a sort of a little hilly incline. And I, I went up and I, I rang the bell and, and his his, uh, his wife, his wonderful wife, uh, answered and called Jack in, and, and Jack said, uh, yeah, we thought that was you. My wife and I, we've been watching out the window. You're walking around the <laughs> <laughs> And so I sat down, and um, he was he was very gracious. He did some sketches. He told some wonderful stories. And, uh, you know, I was completely clueless about history, and here's all of this coming out. And, and Jack, of course, became a, a good friend. I interviewed him many times, and and he was also the the first one too to say, you know, you should also be talking over to, uh, to Kimball, you know, and about that. And so he'd pick up a phone and and call somebody and say, yeah, there's this kid here, and he's really interested in animation, and he'd like to talk to you, and he's a good kid, and you know. And so some of that stuff I wrote about in uh, uh, school newspapers, and it got picked up by the the local newspapers, the uh, you know the Glendale News Press and the Daily News and uh, the Burbank Ledger. And uh, then in those days, they also had what were called fanzines. Uh, fanzines were magazines that were produced in a limited amount by by fans of that area. There were fanzines for people interested in science fiction and and all of that. And and there were some fanzines that were. Uh, focused on uh, animation, like Michael Barrier's uh, Funny World and uh, um, Dave Merz's uh, Animania, and so you didn't get paid for writing for these because they, they these people were you know uh, mowing lawns and all this just to afford to limited uh, produce these magazines, and so I started writing for those as well, and then later to real magazines and all of this and. Uh, you know, all to get to my uh, ultimate goal, uh, which was to be on uh, Randy Crane's podcast. And so now my life is complete. There you go. No place left to go from here but down, I guess. That, 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 or sideways. Sometimes you can go sideways. That's true. You may have plateaued here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and also, I, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the Glendale area, and so there were um, – Two fan clubs, the National Fantasy Fan Club, which is now known as the Disneyana Fan Club, and a club called the Mouse Club, and they would hold meetings maybe twice a year at uh, a hotel in Anaheim, and you would go and and sometimes they would bring in people like a, a Mark Davis or a Ken Anderson or a Ward Kimball or whatever, you know, to give a speech, you know, a, a presentation, and then you could talk to them afterwards, and you could go around and 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 buy things on dealers' tables, you know, because it was a like a convention type thing. So uh, uh, fortunately, I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, I didn't realize how blessed I was until, you know, literally decades later when I realized, oh, my gosh, you know, Ken Anderson is gone. Nobody can talk to him anymore. You know, Jack Hanna is gone. Nobody can, can hear the, these uh, uh, stories anymore. And again, my frustration was now that I knew more, I had questions that I never got around to asking these guys. And so to this day, I go, oh, I wish I had asked Jack about, 
you know, working on the uh, animated uh, uh, commercials in the 1950s. But I didn't even know he had done that. You know, I, I was lucky enough just to know he, he uh, did something on Donald Duck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So the, I understand now how you became interested in Disney and got connected to all of these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, starting from, you said, about age 12, and then as you went through school and everything. But then you also worked for Disney. Yes. So yes. how did that come about? Oh, well, uh, uh, again, that was, I was quite content in uh, uh, living in the Los Angeles uh, area because, because again, uh, I, I had many dreams. Uh, one of them, of course, was uh, to be an actor. So I've done a couple of hundred different theatrical uh, uh, plays. I've directed uh, uh, plays. I've been in movies. I've been on on TV things. I was on the gong show with my brothers as Singing Dancing Hunchbacks, the Quasimodo Bel Airs. Um, (laughs) uh, Quasimodo, do you know who's going to win the third race? No, but I got a hunch. Uh, I was was on the dating game. I was on Family Feud. You know, I, I, I... I had a career in Los Angeles, and then uh, what happened is um, my parents uh, uh, became uh, uh, ill, congestive uh, heart failure, and and I felt that I could uh, um, always get another job but never get another mom and dad, and they just needed to be moved out of L.A. because the smog was causing, you know, respiratory problems and uh, just the stress of L.A., and so uh, my brother Mike, who is a performer, he was he was on the Gong Show with me, uh, was, was uh, uh, working out at uh, Disney MGM Studios as a streetmosphere performer. Um, as uh, uh, Kid Rawhide, a cowboy, old uh, you know motion picture cowboy, he'd spin a rope and all that, and we'd go out to visit. And my impression was. Florida is a nice place to go visit for a vacation, but there's no jobs. There's unless you're working in a theme park or a hotel or a restaurant, there there's no way of making a living there. And uh, and they didn't have all the things that were in L.A. All the all the great theater, all the movies, all the events. You could go to different conventions every week. You know, a comic book convention, a TV memorabilia convention, whatever. But um, so uh, I picked up mom and dad, uh, sold the house at a loss, and moved out to uh, Orlando, Florida, um, you know, without a job, figuring God's going to take care of things, so I don't need to worry about that. And so I started out uh, doing all sorts of little odd jobs at uh, in the Orlando area, like, you know, making balloon animals at restaurants and things like that. Uh, because, again, I had a background in specialty entertainment, juggling, comedy, magic, all of that. I never knew which job I was going to be out of work from. And uh, Disney hired me for the old Pleasure Island uh, to uh, uh, do some comedy magic, uh, strolling around, and also make uh, balloon animals for drunk college students. <laughs> uh, you know, they, 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 they'd come up and they'd go, make me a balloon hat with balloons. Well, I have a master's <laughs> degree in theater arts. You're not making me happy. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm making these balloon hats and all that. And uh, in, in three months' time, uh, I, all through this, I was auditioning at, at Disney and I was auditioning at Universal, all of this. Um, 
they picked me up uh, as a summertime character at Frontierland. Brush Victor Pat, an old gold miner. <laughs> By golly, watch out for Big Thunder Mountain. And so I had this scraggly beard and overalls and this, and I, I was wandering around Frontierland getting people involved. And uh, Disney seemed to like what I was doing. And so um, when the summer came to an end, uh, they asked me to be Merlin the Magician doing the Sword and the Stone ceremony. Oh, yes, looking, looking for the new temporary royal ruler of Fantasyland. Yes, 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 yes. And so I wore a costume that weighed about, gosh, 40 pounds at least. And so I never looked better than I did in my entire life because I could eat anything I wanted because it just sweated off during during a, a, a day's work as Merlin, as as he would, you know, trot out there with his, his carpet bag and his, his big wooden hourglass and all of that and uh, do the sword and the stone uh, uh, ceremony. And I had a wonderful time doing that. And during that period, that was uh, uh, fall of 1995, um, Disney was preparing to open uh, the Disney Institute, which was going uh, to be based on a concept that uh, Michael Eisner had, that people were really looking to have vacations now where they learned something on vacation. And so they were going to be offering all of these classes so that people would, would come. And uh, one uh, line of uh, classes would be devoted to animation. And I had a background um, in animation. Uh, I, I'm a good enough artist to know how really bad I am, but uh, <laughs> I can certainly teach people how, how to draw. And um, uh, so I applied. I also applied for their entertainment track, and they also had a storytelling track. But, uh, yes, they brought me on as an animation instructor in 1996 when the Disney Institute opened. I was an animation instructor, and I taught uh, the history of animation and uh, uh, taught people how to make uh, old-fashioned animation uh, devices, you know, flip books and thaumatropes and all that, so that they could actually uh, make animation at home if, if they wanted to. I, I taught people how to, to paint cells, which was a, a dying art. Uh, I taught uh, a, a basic computer animation course, a, a basic uh, uh, stop motion uh, animation course, and uh, I taught a class uh, uh, that only two of us taught. It was called Voices of Disney, where people mm. could would come in, and because of my background as an entertainer, I, I could teach them how to do, uh, you know, vocal placements. You know, oh gosh, thanks. I love being on Randy's podcast. Oh, yuck. You should, too. Oh, gosh, you're right, Goofy. So I, I, I did all that. And then um, it turned out that Michael Eisner was wrong. People wanted to come out and take some classes, but they also wanted to go to the parks. You know, they didn't want to just stay there at the Disney Institute. So the Disney Institute kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I moved over, I transferred over to Disney Adult Discoveries. And Disney Adult Discoveries was the name of the group uh, that did the uh, uh, backstage uh, uh, tours uh, for guests, you know, and the uh, Hidden Treasures of World Showcase, uh, 
Hyde Fantasy, where you took them uh, backstage to uh, uh, holiday services where they're putting together the trees and and that type of thing. And so there was a variety of classes for guests and a variety of classes for uh, convention groups. Uh, you know, a lot of them uh, uh, customized, and there were some business programs. Uh, you know, Disney's approach to customer service, all that. So I was involved with all of that. And then the Disney Institute continued to to shrink. Or as Disney said, the Disney Institute is so successful, it cannot be limited to one physical location. The entire property is the classroom for Disney Institute. Oh, that's nice. Yes. That's a good spin. Yes. So, so as we were kicked out of the classrooms of the Disney Institute, and it became Saratoga Springs, uh, I moved over to uh, Epcot to as a coordinator for college and international programs. Uh, I, I had been brought over to write a backstage tour for them called uh, uh, Undiscovered Future World, and they loved me and they loved my work so much that they said we've got to find a place for you so they put me in guest relations for a little bit but then they moved me over officially as a coordinator with uh, uh, college and international programs because again I'm a, I'm a certified teacher and they needed to offer classes to the college and international students uh, so it didn't look like they were just uh, getting cheap labor they had to demonstrate to uh, the countries and to the universities that the kids were actually being given an opportunity to learn something about the Disney business and how Disney does things. And so I taught uh, many of those classes. And then I was moved over to um, the Disney Learning Center and became a coordinator there. That was sort of like a computer lab and a library. And uh, they needed somebody over there because some of the more mature cast members would uh, pick up a mouse and uh, think it was a remote control and would be clicking away or turn it upside down. And then everything was being put onto the computers, you know, uh, your, your paycheck, your schedule, all of this, so that you needed somebody to help guide some of these people through and some of the international students. And so that's what I was doing where four years ago, I was uh, in in there, and I was ordering uh, some more toner and paper for the printer, and uh, this person from the Epcot administration office said, oh, Jim, can I talk to you for a minute, which is not unusual because uh, I was helping out a lot of different groups, uh, uh, Imagineering, marketing, all of that, because they would constantly come to me if they needed a history you know, perspective for something that they wanted to do. And so I turned off my computer, I went out, and, and she was down at the end of the hall. And I thought, oh, well, she just doesn't want to talk, you know, um, you know, in front of the uh, open door there. And so I followed her down, and she turned a corner. I went into the corner. Suddenly I'm in this little room, and there's this little man with huge glasses. And he says, uh, uh, thank you for everything that you've done. We're going to need to take your ID now, and this security guard is going to walk you out to your car. I thought, what have I done? And they said, oh, yeah. no, you haven't done anything. You're, you're fine. We, 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 we really enjoy everything that you've done, and it's fine. Uh, we're just, uh, we've just eliminated your role. And so that week, uh, Walt Disney World eliminated 3,000 people in one week. Wow. Yes. And, and it's like, what? 
and uh, uh, we wish you the best of luck. And, uh, you know, if something else opens up, you know, please go to Casting Center and apply. And But, yeah, they eliminated 3,000 people in one week. And, and all of it by surprise. And, and so it's like, no. So when I did my exit interview, I, I said, well, is there anything in my file? And they said, oh, no, no. No, you, you've kept your nose clean and everything's fine. It's just, you know, we're, we're cutting back on staffing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. And so, <laughs> so it was like, oh, no, no, what, what, what's going to happen? And so um, I had been writing under the name of Wade Sampson uh, because um, I had a supervisor because the Disney Learning Center was under the uh, uh, management of Disney University, and she hated me being called a Disney historian. She said, there is no role in the Disney company that is a Disney historian. And I said, no, I, I know that. And she said, people should not call you a Disney historian. I said, but that's what I am. And, and you know, I, I, when I write things for Disney magazines, you know, even those published by the Disney company, that's how they identify me. And I, I had done some videos for the for the Disney Company, and they identified me not as coordinator of the Disney Learning Center, but Disney historian. And she said, no, you can't call yourself that, you know. Right, right, that's not right. All right. So I talked to legal. Uh, I talked to uh, Jack Yellen, who was vice president of Disney uh, Legal uh, Corporate out in California, and he said, no, no, it's fine for you to do this as long as this does not conflict, you know, with your regular job. And I, I said, no, it, it, it doesn't. I I'm doing my regular job. I'm actually doing overtime and and all of that uh, for that. And what I'm being asked to do as a Disney historian is completely different than what my responsibilities are. So, oh, no, you can do that. But um, my supervisor just didn't see it that way. So in order to get this out, I, I had to adopt a pseudonym, Wade Sampson. And Wade Sampson came from the fact that there was a, a book called The Rat Factory, written by um, a ex-Disney animator who actually wrote the book under a pseudonym. And, <laughs> and so um, uh, the Walt Disney character in the book is called Wade Sampson, and he created the, the character Ricky Rat. So um, I thought, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to use a Walt Disney uh, you know, pseudonym. But as soon as I was let go from the Disney company, I thought, this doesn't make sense to write under the name of Wade Sampson anymore, you know? So, um, you know, and, and it was also a little irritating because books were coming out and they were quoting Wade Sampson, you know, and Wade Sampson was appearing, you know, in the bibliographies, you know? And I mm -hmm. said, no, you know, I'm out of work now. <laughs> I... <laughs> I, I think it might be best if people thought about Jim Corcus and maybe started offering Jim Corcus some some, some jobs. So so that's why in Mouse Planet, uh, you know, it, it suddenly Wade Sampson became uh, Jim Corcus, and I thought, well, people will be upset. Nobody was upset at all. I, I guess people are used to, uh, you know, Stephen King wrote under the pseudonym Richard Bachman because he was turning out so many Stephen King books. His publisher says you can't do that because it'll be a glut on the market. So he started writing books under the name of Richard Bachman. You know, uh, uh, Thinner, uh, that book was Richard Bachman. 
and I'm on. I'm still on good terms with the Disney uh, uh, company. The Disney company uh, uh, employs me as a freelance now, so that they don't have to pay health benefits or anything like that. Right. They employ me as a freelance writer, and so I write for Mickey Insider. I write for uh, the Disney Files, which is the Disney Vacation Club magazine. Um, I've, I've done uh, a, a couple of videos for them, one on uh, Walt's Love of Steam Trains, which is on YouTube, which is a, a really nice one. I, 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 I wrote that, and then they also had me on camera as the uh, uh, narrator, as the spokesman, uh, going uh, through that. So I'm still on good terms with uh, uh, the Disney company. They, they just don't want to have me as a full-time salaried person with benefits. So they're content with that. So I've gone off, and uh, you know, it, it's always funny how 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 life works. You know, if it hadn't been for the fact that Disney laid me off, I wouldn't have been able to do those books that I've done. You know, the Vault of Walt and uh, the Book of Mouse and Who's Afraid of the Song of the South. Uh, you know, all available on Amazon, all available from uh, ThemeParkPress.com. Um, because all of those books would even, though, you know, that was not my responsibility at Disney, if I had wanted to write a book, I would have had to have uh, sent it through their approval first so that Disney could decide uh, whether they wanted to publish it or they would deny doing that or if they would say, no, we cannot approve this at all uh, for publication. And uh, as you know, because you've read my books, there's nothing mean or evil in the books or tabloid sleazy or whatever, but that doesn't right. make any difference. Disney is worried about um, not just uh, Disney legal, but Disney brand. And so uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I just uh, wrote uh, an article for a, a Disney uh, approved publication um, uh, a month ago, and it was rejected because of this sentence. And so I had, and it took me a while to figure that out, and I had to then rewrite the sentence. It's it's about the new meet and greet uh, area at uh, Fantasyland with the princesses, and I had mm-hmm. talked with the Imagineer who was in charge, uh, Jason Grant, and he had described the area as, you know, this is an annex of the uh, of Cinderella's castle, you know, almost sort of like a a guest house uh, type thing in in the castle. And so the sentence I wrote was, uh, this beautiful area is an annex uh, to Cinderella's castle based on the classic Disney animated feature, Cinderella. And so my entire article was rejected because of that sentence. Really? Yes. Are Are you smarter than a Disney historian? Why would they reject that sentence? I have no idea. A beautiful annex to Cinderella's castle based on the classic Disney animated feature, Cinderella. I have no idea. Well, my gosh, you'll never write for Disney. You can't, Clearly. You can't use the word classic because it makes it sound like it's old, that it's not contemporary. <laughs> Even though they're calling things a modern classic yes, lesson, yes. right? Well, well, again, one of the things you find with Disney, too, is that they're completely inconsistent. (laughs) (laughs) And depending on who happens to read it at what time 
and which department is reading it. You know, uh, for instance, I wrote about Disney Springs, you know, the new uh, area that's going to be at uh, uh, downtown Disney at Walt Disney World. And I made the mistake of saying, you know, uh, this is in the former location of Pleasure Island. And so I got rejected because they don't want Pleasure Island mentioned because they don't want people to remember Pleasure Island, you know. And another example of that inconsistency. Right. So, so, so Disney brand and Disney legal, you know, are always uh, involved with this. So, for instance, so the articles I write for the Disney Vacation Club not only go through Disney archives in terms of, you know, what is the accuracy of the facts, but also Disney legal and Disney brand in terms of, well, what is it we're selling now, you know, and what is it that we don't want people to remember? Yeah, for if, if I remember right, they just recently announced the Destination D Attraction Rewind, some of the details for that that's coming up in November. And one of the things they're spotlighting is Pleasure Island. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and so as I tell people, uh, the Disney company is the place where the right hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. <laughs> so it's not a case of the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. The right hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And and Disney has grown so large now that, you know, there's no connection. You know, th- there's no link be- between uh, all of this. They're, they're all separate uh, silos. I, I, I like to tell people that it's not just one happy magic kingdom. It's a bunch of separate fiefdoms that all report to the same king. And and sometimes what those fiefdoms do is they try to undercut each other, you know, to to make themselves look better or, you know, not help each other out on on some of these things. And, you know, it's just become a business, just like any other business. And just like any other business, they're also very worried about the short term. You know, uh, Roy O. Disney, Walt's brother, once said, uh, Walt is always doing things today for it to pay off tomorrow. You know, Walt was always thinking three years ahead, five years ahead, ten years ahead. In, in fact, when Walt passed away, he had enough projects in development that uh, it, it allowed the Disney company to survive for ten years just on things that Walt had in the works, you know. Uh, wow. if, if, if for that to happen, that, that's that's not the case uh, uh, today because again, it, it's a different business culture. You know, I, I don't know if Walt uh, and Walt's way of business uh, uh, would survive uh, uh, today. You know, uh, Mark Davis stood up at a at a meeting when they were talking about some additions for Disneyland, and he began his speech by saying well, I've got an expensive way of doing this and a cheap way of doing this. And Walt got up and walked up to him and put his hand on his shoulders, and he said, at Disney, there's only one way of doing it, the best way. You don't have to worry about the money. There are other people that will worry about the money. All you have to worry about is what is the best that we can give to the guests. Mm Mm-hmm. They said Walt would walk around, you know, and, and look at projects and, and would go, oh, the guests are really going to love this. The guests are really going to eat this up. Or, or or he'd say, the guests deserve something better than this. And the other thing he would do is he would go out and he would squat in locations 
to see how a kid would visualize it. Huh. Yes. I can picture that. Yeah, you know, and, and, and so that was Walt's philosophy, is that quality will out. That if you provide quality, um, people will appreciate that. People will recognize that. People will pay you back. For that quality, you know, uh, when Autopia opened in 1955, uh, they they could have gotten those those cars just off the shelf from any amusement park or carnival or whatever that were these ricky ticky uh, little cars put together with tin and all that. But but Walt literally had Bob Gurr, you know, come up with the design. They they modify these all. Of it. it got so expensive that each one of those cars cost about the same amount that you would pay to buy a real car, low-end car, from Detroit. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's so expensive. Those cars lasted till 2005. You know, other than, you know, you change out the tires, you change out, you know, the oil, that usual maintenance. But those cars lasted for 50 years. And the only reason they changed out is because, you know, they... They, they want to connect in with cars, the the movie, and some of those other things. Those cars could still be running today for, for that amount. So when you think about that, and it's like, oh, my gosh, this man spent so much money on these cars in 55. Yeah, but they lasted 50 years. You know, you amateurize right. the cost. That's just pennies. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, but, 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 that, but that was Walt's thought is, you know, you, you – do the thing that is right. You do the thing that is right for the guests. You give them the very best thing, and and it'll pay off. It it may take weeks. It may take months. It may even take years. But it'll pay off. And look at the satisfaction that you've had up to that point. Right. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and it reminds me of the story. And I'm pretty sure that I heard or read this story from you actually uh, when he was putting the Carol with Pacific in his backyard. Mm-hmm. And wanted to have the tunnel yes. that went under the flower beds and everything, and he wanted the curve in it. Mm-hmm. And the develop the, the the landscape architect says, you know, it'd be cheaper to just go straight through. And he said it'd be cheaper not to do it at all. Absolutely, and and yes, you probably heard that from me. And that uh, originally came actually from an unpublished uh, interview that Walt did with uh, author uh, Pete Martin, who was writing for the Saturday Evening Post. And so in 1956, summer of 56, uh, he sat down in Walt's backyard and recorded hours of interviews, which were going to be run as a a series of, uh, I think it was eight articles in Saturday Evening Post, but credited to Diane Disney Miller, you know, my father, Walt Disney, uh, all of that. And then it was later uh, uh, published in uh, a uh, book uh, released in uh, 57, Uh, the story of Walt Disney. But that's where that story came from, and yes, that's absolutely true. But but (laughs) Walt Walt said it with a laugh, you know. And, uh, yeah, that that tunnel was... And he had to have a tunnel. Well, the reason he wanted the S-curve is because it was a short tunnel. So when you go into the tunnel, you know, you can usually see the end of the tunnel. He wanted guests to be able to go in the tunnel and not be able to see the end so they didn't know how long the tunnel was. And there's this darkness and there's that anticipation, there's that excitement and your mind starts to work and then you curve back out and you, you, you see the exit. But he had to put the, the tunnel there because his wife did not want uh, 
the train in the backyard because the the route was going to go uh, past these glass windows, and she basically said, I don't want to be sitting here with my friends, you know, uh, playing bridge and looking out and seeing that smelly, smoky thing going, and my husband out there on top of it, you know, going going through that. And Walt was so upset that he went to uh, the studio, his, the Disney studio, and he slept there, you know, overnight because he was so angry. And then he had his lawyer at the studio the next morning draw up a right-of-way <laughs> and then took it back that afternoon to have uh, his wife sign it and his daughter sign it. And, and he said, you, the train's going to go through here, but I guarantee you won't see it. I'll, I'll, I'll have it go underneath you know, your, your rose beds here because uh, his, his wife just loved the roses. So they, they signed off on that. But that's, what, that's why there's a, there was a tunnel uh, uh, under there, and again, so sad after um, you know they uh, uh, after Lillian's death, they they sold that uh, uh, that property, that that home, and and the guy who bought it literally said, "Oh yes, I you know I want to keep this as it is," and within a week or two, he had just bulldozed everything down because again, the land there was so valuable. But you know how wonderful that would have been, you know, to go and you know walk through all of that oh well what might have yeah. been what might have been you know we move That's on right. into the future that as walt as walt said we've had our ups and downs but we never look backwards exactly so let me ask you you, know, you spent all of these years interviewing people that worked for disney and mm -hmm. and all this and then you move out to orlando and you finally get to work for disney do you remember a time where it just kind of dawned on you that you were now a part of this history and this company and everything that you had been interviewing people and learning about and everything and admiring for all of these years? I, I, I think for me, it was the first time being um, backstage at the Magic Kingdom as a cast member. You know, I, mm. I, I, I'd, I, you know I'd, I had friends who had worked for Disney and all that, and I'd, I'd been taken back, but, but you always feel like you you know you're that visitor you're that outsider you know and and you're not quite completely comfortable once you're a cast member and you're backstage at the magic kingdom it's like oh my gosh you know i belong here i i i own this place <laughs> <laughs> you know this, this this is amazing you know and 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 then you get nonchalant you know Oh yeah, when I was backstage, you know, I, I saw such and such, you know. So that was really about, oh my gosh, this is this this is just great. And you know, the reverse is, is true as well. Since I've been uh, uh, laid off, you know, again, I've had people, and and I've had to do things on Disney uh, uh, property. Uh, they had a uh, film crew come down from uh, Chicago at the uh, and stay at Disney for a week. And, you know, they had some uh, contest winners and things like that. And, and so they wanted to have uh, somebody talk about Walt's life uh, in Chicago. So, you know, Walt Disney World employs 60,000 people. They couldn't find one person to talk about Walt in Chicago. So they brought me in. And, and it's early in the morning. It's oh dark hundred. And, and I get special permission to park backstage, you know, and I'm walking in. And I'm going, I've done this you know, hundreds of times, and now I feel like 
oh gosh, well maybe I shouldn't be here. This is I'm it's not right for me to be here backstage. <laughs> oh, oh gosh. Oh, but when I was working there it was like, oh yeah. Oh. Did you ever imagine in those early days that people would seek you out for interviews the way you had no, thought animated no. about? Gosh, no, no. And you know, it it still doesn't. Uh, one of my friends is Leonard Malton, who, who's been doing this a lot longer than I have. And and he says, yes, it, it, it's kind of scary that, you know, uh, people will come up to him and, and, and say, what would Bing Crosby have thought about, you know? <laughs> what would, and, and it's like, and, and Leonard says, well, you know, I, I interviewed the guy and I talked with the guy and I saw the guy, but I don't have a clue. You know, I, I, I might be able to make a reasonable guess. And and in my case, it, it, it's the same thing. It, it was just so natural that I had, you know, access and opportunity uh, to these people. But I, and, and again, one of the questions I always get asked is, you know, well, what would Walt Disney think about this? You know, he'd, he'd be spinning in his grave. Right. Uh, and it's it's and I, I say, I have no clue. I, I said, I might. I might be able to make a reasonable guess what the Walt Disney of 1966 would have said, you know, but, but even then, you know, that's not an actuality because Walt was constantly surprising people by, by doing different things or saying things, you know, that they, they, they never, Oh, well, Walt won't like this and Walt loved it, you know, type thing. But, but I could make maybe a reasonable guess, but the, the Walt Disney of 2014, who knows? You know, Walt was constantly growing both professionally and personally, and he, he was learning, and he was, he, he was changing his impressions about things. And uh, I know he would be involved with uh, uh, technology. It, Disney would have been involved with social media uh, 10 years earlier, easily, you know. Um, but what Walt would think about some of these things, Gosh, anybody's guess, anybody's guess at, <laughs> at all. You know, I I have some clues. I you know I I can say you know he he wasn't racist. He he, he you know he had approved this. He he didn't hate women. You know he gave them all these opportunities. So yes, he you know th- th- this would be fine. He he loved families and and he and the concept of the family has changed tremendously since 1955. You know, in 1955 it was a you know, a, a, a father and a mother and two children, basically. You know, that mm-hmm. was a family. Um, but in 2014, family refers to so many other different configurations. But I think Walt would have adapted uh, to all of those. But, yes, to get back to your original question, yeah, it, I, I've been asked, you know, well, Ward Kimball, would Ward Kimball have let you? Know, it's like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> just because I talked to Ward, you know, I, I wasn't his best buddy, you know. I, we didn't go skinny dipping in the, the Griffith Park uh, fountain, you know, uh, <laughs> together. But as as we touched on earlier, I do feel sort of that responsibility that since they shared things with me, I, I feel that I'm I'm sort of their surrogate spokesman. I need to share those things with other people. And, and I also feel that Disney history is like this this huge jigsaw puzzle you know and and i figure if i share the two or three pieces that i have you know maybe somebody else will be encouraged to share their piece or go wait a minute i have a piece and we put it here and yeah we can see that's the top of a boat 
<laughs> oh, wow. Okay, we can see more of the bigger picture here as that goes through. And then I also worry, too. You know, you, you never know how much time, you know, we've all got an expiration date and we don't know what it is. I, I better get this stuff out there while I can because nobody's getting any younger. And uh, there's only a very, very small handful of people left who actually knew Walt Disney. Mm-hmm. You know, that became a big problem. Um, I, I helped work on the 100 Years of Magic promotion in 2001 because, again, they trotted me out because, well, you know, you know everything about Walt Disney. Yeah, you do this. And I had to write things in two different versions. I had to write things of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Walt helped create the uh, multiplane camera. Uh, Walt was a proponent for synchronized sound. And then I had to write it as uh, the Disney company was very innovative, and uh, part of that innovation was the multiplane camera and synchronized sound. Because they found that in 2001, there were a lot of people who had no clue who Walt Disney was. They went to colleges, and they found that a lot of students thought that Walt Disney was uh, like Betty Crocker or Colonel Sanders. So Betty Crocker is completely made up. It's a corporate icon, completely made up. And Colonel Sanders was a real person, but people perceived him as not having day-to-day influence in, in his company, especially in the later years, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's how Walt Disney was perceived. Is He, he was s- somehow this fanciful character or, yes, he, he was a real person, but that's what he was, is he just represented the company. And it's like, what? What? And, you know, we're we're fast approaching uh, uh, 50 years since Walt passed away. Yeah, I can't believe that's just about, well, two years from the end of this year. Yes. Wow. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and, and to me, Walt's still alive, but there's an entire generation out there, again, who didn't see him weekly on on TV, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, didn't see him at events, you know, things like that. And the Disney company, of course, has, has made him and and this is what really irritated his daughter Diane Disney Miller was uh, is not promoting him as a person but almost like another Disney character you know you can go into Walt Disney World and you can buy a Walt Disney mustache they sell a Walt Disney mustache you know and and on the one hand i think oh well that's kind of cute and i know that with the younger generation there's a a push now with uh, mustaches and different kinds of you know, temporary fake mustaches. So so I get that. But on the other hand, it, it's like you're minimizing him as not a real person. And, you know, what what is that? I, I We may have an entire generation growing up thinking that Walt Disney looked and sounded like Tom Hanks. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, I was disappointed, too, that, you know, when Meryl Streep came out and talked about uh, Walt Disney, you know, at that awards event and, and the claim that he was uh, racist, which he wasn't, and anti-Semitic, which he wasn't, and that he hated women, which he didn't, uh, that the Disney company did not come out with a statement, even a softball one, you know, of uh, Miss Streep is, is mistaken on, on these things. Here's, you know, they didn't come out with any of that at all. It's like, okay. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that just struck me as, well, that's odd. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know this is wrong. 
You don't want to offend Meryl Streep? What's going on? (laughs) 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 So, And I actually want to come back to that in a little bit and talk about that in more detail. But before we do that, thinking about all your time working for Disney – uh, from Prospect. Prospector Pat and, and Merlin through animation, through international programs, through yeah. backstage tours. And, and again, during, during all of that, I was uh, oftentimes loaned out to um, other departments, you know, like, like Imagineering, like marketing, like uh, uh, Walt Disney World military s- uh, sales. They, w- they would often trot me out and and I would do uh, presentations and and events a- around uh, uh Walt's patriotism you mm-hmm. know so uh, and and to me it, it was great fun getting all these different perspectives and being able to help out and then also the time that I worked at Walt Disney World was great too because there were still some of those wonderful uh uh, leaders like uh, Sully Sullivan and and Bill Matheson and Ron Heminger and all of this who had known Walt and been trained by Walt at Disneyland and then moved out to uh, uh, Walt Disney World to work. So, uh, you know, I, I got to talk to people like Charlie Ridgway, who was the huge uh, Disney Parks uh, publicist and all this. And, and again, they were, just as I had my little man with glasses telling me, you know, there's the door, don't let it hit you as you walk out, a lot of these uh, wonderful, wonderful people, they were offered golden parachutes, but, but it was the same thing of there's the door, and if you don't decide to walk out it, somebody's going to help you walk out it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I got a wonderful chance to talk with them. So I was out at Walt Disney World at the exact right opportunity and time as well before these people disappeared. Right. Uh, and during all that time, which you covered a lot of different ground and you know did a lot of different things, is there anything in particular that you really just loved the most about what you did? Uh, gosh, I I love them all. And again, it's like picking your favorite child. But but it would be like if somebody came and 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 said, Jim, we listened to Randy Crane's podcast and and how foolish we were. We made a no, we made a complete mistake. We want to bring you back. What do you want to do? I I, I loved doing uh, working for Disney Adult uh, Discoveries because again you're you're interacting with people, you're sharing Disney knowledge and Disney insights with with people who truly appreciate them. I love teaching animation because that was uh, such a strong tradition, and in fact, uh, Disney Feature Animation Florida uh, had me come over and I taught history of animation and I taught, uh, acting for animators, uh, over there who would ever thought that they would have killed the animation department in, in Florida. You know, they did yeah. Mulan, they did Lilo and stitch. They did the Roger rabbit shirts, whoever figured they were going to be shown the door. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but the absolute role that I would love to do if Disney came back and said, Jim, we love you. The world loves you. What can we do to make you happy? Uh, I would love to have a role that doesn't exist at Disney now, and that would be Disney. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Jim Corcus for being my guest, and to you for listening. We've got a lot more stories next time, so be sure to come back for episode 55. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, 
you've written a book, you're blogging, writing or performing music, art, whatever it is, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime, 24 hours a day. I also want to talk to and hear from people who have worked for Disney. So if you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and you'd like to share a positive story, again, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let's talk about it. If you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or you've had any special Disney experience you want to share or you want to give a compliment or a thank you for anything Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you as well. Once again, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Remember, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Choose from titles like In the Shadow of the Matterhorn by David Smith, Creating Magic or the Customer Rules by Lee Cockrell, both past guests on the show, or of course, my book, Faith in the Magic Kingdom. To download your free audiobook today, go to storiesofthemagic.com audible. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com audible for your free audiobook. And again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I have a special gift for you as a listener to Stories of the Magic, the one-hour audio walking tour of Disneyland. I want to thank those of you who have downloaded it so far. I hope you're enjoying it, and I'd like to encourage those of you, if you haven't downloaded it, to please go right ahead and do so. Stroll around the park with me as I share some valuable reminders and insights to help you look at the park and some parts of your life with new eyes. As I said before, No strings, nothing to fill out or sign up for, just for the month of April. Go to storiesofthemagic.com slash faithaudiotour, and that's your direct link to the MP3 to download it. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com slash faithaudiotour. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. In fact, if you remember Prospector Pete, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love for you to leave a comment either in the show notes or on the Facebook page, which I'll tell you how to get there in just a second, and tell me that you remember him. In fact, if you've got a picture, that would be even cooler. But I just want to know if you're out there and you remember Prospector Pete from Frontierland. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Basically, just tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. And speaking of letting others know, I want to thank the person who left the most recent five-star review for uh, the podcast on iTunes. Thank you, Red Baron 34 And thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. 
If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com, for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.